And the question now is to you, Mr. Gillum. The question is for you, did you know when you took that ticket from your brother in the lobby of the Richard Rogers Theater on 46th there in Manhattan, that an undercover agent posing as a developer had paid for the ticket and was gifting it to you? Yeah, I know this has been a great theme of uh, news today, and so I want to set it straight, especially for the benefit of my opponent. Uh, one, uh, I did go and see Hamilton. I, I was aware uh, that Adam Corey and uh, Mike Miller arranged uh, so that we could go and see the show. Uh, I arrived at the theater and received my ticket from my brother. But let me tell you, I'm running for governor. Uh, in the state of Florida, we got a lot of issues. In fact, we got 99 issues, and Hamilton ain't one of them. Uh, I get that. I absolutely love that answer by Andrew Gillum in the gubernatorial debate right before the election against Ron DeSantis. Had this unwarranted investigation not been leaked right before the election, he would be our governor. Our whole state, our whole country may be in a different place. Unfortunately, the FBI brought this case, this unwarranted case against an innocent Andrew Gillum, and we're going to be talking about it with my trial partner, my law partner, the amazing Margot Moss in this season finale episode. My name is David Oscar Marcus. Welcome back to For the Defense. This is one of my favorite episodes as I have my partner Margot on. She is a truly amazing lawyer, truly amazing trial lawyer, one of the most dedicated criminal defense lawyers, defenders that I know. And I'm so honored uh, to have her on the show to talk about the case. I truly believe, and you'll hear us discuss it, how she won the case in her opening statement here for Andrew Gillum. Andrew was innocent and she brought that out in her opening and won the case. At the very end of this episode, I'll give you the CLE codes for the season. It's been a really fun season. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you enjoy this season finale, a really fun episode um, for a wonderful, innocent client, Andrew Gillum in For the Defense. Next. Welcome to the season finale. I'm really excited to have my partner, Margot Moss, on the show. Margot and I have tried cases all over the country together, Puerto Rico, Kentucky, Orlando, New York, Denver, and this one was in Tallahassee, um, and I'm excited to talk to Margot about it. Hey, Margot. Hey, David. I'm excited to be here, too, um, and I'm excited for everybody that's listening because, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, and you're always interviewing these great trial attorneys but I don't know if everyone knows what an incredible trial attorney you are. So it's great to be able to talk to you about one of your cases. Well, you make me look good. Um, so that, so, so it's good. So, you know, we, we like trying cases out of town. Um, this one was an out of town case, but, but before we get, you know, into why we like out of town and so on, can you, can you tell everybody about the Andrew Gillum charges and give them a little background before we start up? Sure. So we represented Andrew Gillum, who was the Democratic nominee for governor for the state of Florida in 2018. Um, so a, a, a politician that's pretty well known in Florida, um, somebody who had spent his life working in um, not just politics, but also just public service, trying to to build people up and, and work for the people of his community. Um, and he ends up getting charged with conspiracy and 17 counts of wire fraud. Um, and, and I'll just go briefly into what this wire fraud um, allegations were is 
So the government was looking at these three different areas where money ended up getting transferred. And money is is going from a legitimate um, person or a legitimate entity to another legitimate entity. And then it ends up going to this company called P&P Communications, where Andrew was an employee. And then, of course, some of that money ends up being paid to Andrew as part of his salary. And the government was saying that this is fraud money, that this is money that was um, illegally acquired um, and that he knew about it. So they charge him with these 17 counts of wire fraud. And then they also throw in this additional count of a false statement. And I think the the reason they throw in that additional count is because it had nothing to do with the wire fraud, nothing to do with PNP, nothing to do with Andrew working, but just to dirty him up. And I, I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit later. We will. And, and you say throw it in, but it was count one. It was the lead count in the case. And, and they... Um, focused a lot of time and started off the trial with that false statement count. It was the lead count, but I do think it was an afterthought for them. And I mean, and I truly believe in my heart that they charged the the seventeen counts of wire fraud, but they knew they didn't have quite enough, and so they had to throw in that false statement count. Um, and, and so I, that's why I think that was in there. I, I think the false statement count backfired on them. I mean. You know, we we spent a lot of time litigating that false statement count beforehand because, you know, they show up at a park, they interview Andrew at a park uh, at, right. at some early morning, um, and and he tells the truth. Right. I mean, that's our defense is that he tells the truth, but you know, it, it ends up that because they charge this false statement count, all of this other evidence gets to come into the trial that never would have come in otherwise. And, you know, it, it ends up that that particular count, just one count, the evidence for that count ends up taking up over half of the trial. I mean, it was outrageous. And the things that that came in because of that false statement count, I think, were just absurd. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Um but but you know I have to say in a lot of these cases um, involving politicians and polit- they they charge these false statement counts and there's been a lot of litigation on it. We we were butting heads with the judge a lot um, on this false statement count, both pre-trial and during the trial. You know, in these in these out of town cases, we typically get along with the judges. Um, we did not get along with this judge all that well, and it was odd to me because. We never even met him or had a hearing until the first day of trial. Like the first time we saw him was the morning of trial. Right. Um, I, I, and and I agree with you that, you know, normally when we're, we're traveling out of town, I think there's some skepticism because you have these out of town lawyers coming in. But usually um, judges just end up loving you, David. Um, they see that you're skilled. They see that you're prepared. Um, they see that you're working at a high level. And so they end up loving you, you know, by the end of the trial. But this was not the case here. You, you say loving me. I remember our, our trial in Puerto Rico where you would go back into chambers with Judge Dominguez and talk about the Yankees for hours. So I'm not sure it's it's me. I think they love you. No, I I, I disagree with that. But I did love Judge Dominguez. But uh, I think uh, the judges end up loving you more. The, the Marlins are doing better than the Yankees this year, Margo. Um, so you know, there's still a chance. <laughs> you're saying there's a chance. So you know, I want to tell people 
you know, we try cases together, obviously, and we like to split them up. We split up this trial where I would handle the false statement count substantively, and you would handle all the fraud counts. I think we did it because there was so much more detail with the uh, with the fraud counts, and you're you're a lot more detail oriented than I am. Well, we split it up that way, and I and I um, I I thought you know, giving you the false statement stuff would end up being easy, but it actually ends up that there was more stuff on the false statement. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, you, you say that I'm more detail oriented and, and I I think that's kind of a curse for me, um, because I'm always very much in the weeds and always very, um, detail oriented. And I think, we balance out that way because you are a very big picture and you always know to maintain that 30,000 foot view of everything. And so I think that is, is much more of a blessing to have that view, but uh, you know, either way, I think it balances out. It's a curse for you. It's a blessing for me that you're in the weeds, but you know, one of the things we all, how we always split it up is you almost always handle the voir dire part because you come from state court where you know, you've done a million voir dires. And even though the judge in this case didn't let us ask questions in open court, at, at the sidebar, he did um, let us ask questions. And it was, and, and we got a very brief questionnaire, which we fought hard to get. Um, how important is it to get those questionnaires? And, you know, do you think it helped us in this case? I think it was huge. I think it was the key to getting us a good jury, you know, and, and you talk about how I have a state court background. Um, and so I haven't certainly picked a million juries, but, but I've picked a lot of juries. And I, I think having a, an attorney voir dire makes a huge difference because you really have the opportunity to get inside the jurors' heads, to, to see how they're thinking, to see whether, you know, they are going to come in and be biased against you. And, and so you have the opportunity to, to, you know, get rid of a lot of those people and get a good jury. And of course, we didn't have that here, but we had, um, and this was something that we worked really hard at. I don't know if you remember this, David, but we had initially filed this motion for a written questionnaire. And I think that we attached a proposed questionnaire that was I think it was over 20 pages long. We had close to 70 questions. And of course that failed. And then we submitted another one. And then we ended up, you know, raising it a third time. And so we end up getting this questionnaire with just a few questions, but they're key and crucial questions. So, you know, we're asking questions like, you know, um, have you read or heard anything about Andrew Gillum before this case? And has anything that you've heard or read going to influence how you view this case? And I, I am a firm believer that um, in a written questionnaire, jurors will write very honestly and very openly. And we got that here. And that was key to getting a lot of those bad people off and getting a great jury. And we ended up with a really great jury, a diverse jury. Um, and the key, I think, to helping us win the case. I think it was the best jury we've ever had in in, in a trial other than the two uh, random ones, which we'll talk about uh, that, that we got stuck with. The two holdouts, it ended up being one holdout at the beginning and then two holdouts who were who were just rogue jurors but but the other 10 were incredible people and i have to say when the first 40 came out you know i was a little concerned most people say you know race isn't going to everybody who says that's lying race is really important especially in a trial like this 
And I did not see a lot of African-American jurors and they were sort of down the the, the line. Um, but I have to say the prosecutors did not, to their credit, just strike all the black jurors. And we ended up with five African-American jurors. We did. We ended up with a, a very racially diverse also politically diverse, though, um, jury and um, gender diverse. I mean, we had I don't, I don't remember what the split was, but we had, you know, men and women. And, and you know, I think that whole diversity played for us, except for those two outliers. You know, one of the things we, we love to do is do tons of social media research on the jurors. And the judge would not let us look at the social media of the jurors while we were picking, which I thought was crazy and and I thought we were going to be able to appeal that and it would be a good issue but but how crazy is that? It to me it's crazy. I mean that's kind of standard now, right? Um if you have the resources you try to do that when you're picking the jury you, you, because we we know from past trials that you find these kind of nuggets um, in in social media, or you find jurors who have been posting on social media, even during the voir dire. And so um, I, I thought it was crazy. And and I think unbeknownst to both of us, there is the, this local rule in the middle district that says you can't do it. So um, I think that's wrong. But um, yeah, it was crazy. And, you know, it turns out that one of the holdouts against us had on her Facebook page, which we would have found out had we been allowed to look. Trump is still my president, which was, you know, think whatever you think about Trump. That's not the juror we would have wanted for Andrew Gillum's case. And it was a wild um, thing to have on her Facebook page. And we didn't know about it until the jury was deliberating. Right. Right. True. Wild. We definitely want to know that. Um, so one of the things that we did, and, and this was a little controversial at the time, is we sat a juror who knew Andrew Gillum, who worked in the same building as Andrew Gillum. He was like the head of the maintenance, I think, or something like that. And right. we ended up sitting him. And another juror came to us, was it on day one or day two, saying that that this juror was talking about Andrew? I don't remember if it was day one or day two, but it was definitely very early on. And so, so we were kind of concerned about this particular jury, but th that particular juror, but, you know, they had worked in the uh, Capitol building or in the, the mayor's office in Tallahassee. And Andrew had been this kind of mayor that he, and this is kind of typical of who he is. He's just this kind soul who was nice to everybody. And, and so even to the maintenance people, even to, you know, the staff, he was just always a kind person. Um, and so we were thinking that, you know, he would think well of Andrew, but then he allegedly made this comment to another juror. Um, and and I, to this day, don't know whether he really did that. A, another juror accused him of saying something about Andrew and about saying something about Andrew's wife and saying it to her and saying it to another juror. And so, you know, this caused this whole um, kind of commotion where the the judge questioned her, questioned the the gentleman juror, questioned the other juror, and so we end up getting rid of that one juror. But I don't know if that was the right decision or not. And it turns out later that the other juror said she was lying. Um, you know, when we talked to them after the fact, and that she was um, um, just making this up to bounce the guy. I know, but it's how do you know that at the time? Like, what were you thinking at that time, David? No, I, I, I was, to me, it was a no brainer. We get rid of that juror 
because I didn't think another juror would make something up like that. It was, it was crazy. So to me at the time it was a no brainer, but it turns out that the juror who made the accusation was, was crazy. And, and according to the other jurors um, just made stuff up a real, she was also posting on social media during the deliberations and maybe we're jumping the gun here, but we had to, we had to start, you know, interviewing her and the other jurors during the five days of deliberations. Right. Right. Crazy. It was just crazy. So, so, you know, one of the things that we had to deal with Margo was how to deal with the co-defendant. And this comes up in a lot of trials where, you know, you, you don't, I believe you never want to point the finger at a co-defendant, especially in a case like this, where we, um, the co-defendant's name was Sharon Letman Hicks. Sharon and, and Andrew are very close. She was a mentor, a big sister, Tim, a mother kind of figure to him in, in some ways. Um, and the government offered her a pass to flip on Andrew and she turned it down. She was going to trial. Um, and so we had to figure out how to deal with, you know, the person sitting next to us. Do we, you know, point the finger at her? We, we thought no way we would never do that. Um, but how do you walk that fine line? It's tough. Yeah, it was, it was really tough. Um, and, and I give Sharon a lot of credit, um, Sharon obviously has an incredible amount of courage um, to to take this fight against the government where she could have gotten a pass and easily pointed the the finger, but she wouldn't do that. So I give her a huge amount of credit. Um, So, you know, it it was hard, right? Um, Because there were, I mean, if we look at it objectively, there were more bad facts against Sharon. So we easily could have pointed the finger, but we didn't want to do that. We didn't think that that she was guilty either. And so, you know, I, I think in the end, what we did was we just focused on Andrew. We just said that Andrew didn't know where all this money was coming from. Andrew didn't know the source of the money. And so, you know, the government saying it was fraud and it was fraudulently obtained and you know, I think what we said is, you know, you're going to hear from Sharon's lawyers about that. But what we have to say is that Andrew didn't know. And, you know, we didn't want things to go badly for her. That, you know, I think would have in the end turned out badly for Andrew. But um, and we wanted to say that that she was just as honest and, and trustworthy as Andrew was. You know, it's funny because um we always say in these cases, we're not going to throw a co-defendant under the bus, but we're also not going to carry the water for the co-defendant. That's that's on their lawyers. But, but we always end up um, during crosses and other things doing more than we said we were going to. And, and we did it in this trial, too. Like if there was a point we thought had to be made, we we made it in cross. Right. And and I think that's part of of you. um Number one, not being able to help yourself. Um, <laughs> and and number two, because you were just the, I mean, David, you're just the best cross-examiner I have ever seen. And so, you know, you're able to, you know, really get at the point and really hit the themes. And so, you know, if you see it's not being done by co-counselor or or whoever, you're able to step in there and and get it done and make it clear for the jury. And so um, I mean, you're just a master at that. I should say I loved our our co-counsel in this case, um Taki Akbar and and Alex Morris, two great guys and and easy to work with. Sometimes it's not so easy. I I mean, you know, we've we've told lawyers in other cases to be quiet and not cross uh when they're messing things up. And 
Uh, obviously, we didn't do that in this case. We we really like Sharon and her and her lawyers. Yeah, they were awesome. It was it was a great team. You know, great. one of the things we did in in this trial, we tried to get a severance from um, the co-defendant. We filed these motions before, where we get an affidavit from the co-defendant saying, "Hey, um, our client, in this case Andrew, is innocent and didn't know." And I would testify against them, but I can't testify in a in a joint trial. And and that motion, that severance motion, has actually been successful in a bunch of cases. Um, was unsuccessful here, and the judge shut us down. I th- I thought that would have been another good issue, actually. I think it would have been a good issue, but you know, in in the end, she she didn't testify. Um, well, that's the point, right? She didn't. Right, te- she right. she would have testified in a, in a separate trial. She gave us this affidavit. Um, saying that Andrew didn't know the source of the funds, she was the only person who could have who could have said that. And you know, we were. This is the one part where we were sort of, um, I wouldn't say at odds, but had different opinions during the trial that our co-defendants had. I mean, they, Sharon's lawyers, I don't think wanted her to testify. I kind of wanted her to testify. Um, to explain some of this stuff. It was the right decision for her not to testify and speaking to the jurors after they said, you know, they didn't expect either Andrew or Sharon to testify. Yeah. The, and that was a crazy moment when we, uh, when they told us that. And of course, this is well after the fact, but y- you always think that the jury wants to hear from the person who's been accused and the person who's on trial, but it turns out that they, they never, it, it never occurred to them that they would testify. Um, so it was a good be- it was a good lesson. I mean, my instinct is always to call the client. I know yours is not. Um, and you and I, that's one thing we we have um disagreed about in trials before. I always thought in this case, Andrew, it was a must that he testify. He's so well spoken um and and would have to get up and explain it. But you were adamant that he not. And and at the end of the day, I mean, again, we're jumping the gun here a little bit, but we didn't call him, and it was obviously the right choice. Right. It was the right choice. You know, and I think you have to make those decisions, you know, on the fly. I mean, I mean, and that sounds bad to say on the fly, but you you really don't know until you're in trial and you see how trial is going, um, how to make that decision. And in this particular case, I, I thought the government's case had gone well for us and there was no need for Andrew to testify. Um, so I think it was the right decision. We we always though spend so much time getting our guy ready to testify, um, and we have you know people cross them always better than how the government would cross. You know, one of the, we we have Bill Barzi in our office always crossing our clients, and he he's such a good cross examiner. And and you know a- after the, those experiences, a lot of our clients don't want to do it. Yeah, no, Bill is able to um, destroy any individual, whether innocent or guilty. So um, it's great to have Bill there. You know, one of the things that we always do also is we like to have the courtroom filled with our clients, family and friends. You know, and we did that in this case, we had folks um, who support Andrew there, his family, of course, RJ and, and, um, you know, friends, I, I think it's really important. I think it it makes a huge difference and maybe it's completely unconscious for the jury, but to have, you know, people who are there to support the client, knowing the client has been indicted, has been charged, and yet they are still there. And day after day after day, I mean, these same people would come back every day and then new people would come and, you know, every day the, 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 um, 
the audience was just filled with people. I, I, I can't think that it, it doesn't have an impact on the, on the jury. You know, because in a criminal case, I don't think people realize this. Being a criminal defense lawyer, it's the one, you know, job where everybody's rooting against you, right? Unlike a doctor, you're doing surgery on somebody, the nurse is helping you, the staff is helping you, um, you know, to the extent that there's media coverage, the media is rooting for the person to come out of it. In a criminal case, the judge is against you, the prosecutors are against you, the media is against you. So to have some people there supporting you, not only, you know, it has an impact on the jury, I think it helps, it helps us, you know, having some people there to support us. Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. And and it just goes further towards, you know, what I think what we try so hard to do is we try to humanize our client. And, you know, that's just another way of humanizing the client, of of making it, you know, come across to the jury that this is a person who is loved, who is a husband, who is a father, who is, um, you know, a beacon in the community and and somebody that is, you know, supported. So that brings us to your opening, which, and you, you said a lot of that in your opening as well. And I believe you won the case in opening. I, I told everybody this and I firmly believe it. First, you know, the government and, the, you know, we butted heads with the government a lot and they were effective in, in a lot of parts of the case. But I, I mean, you know, I don't think they did a great opening statement in this case. And yours was so good and so powerful. Um, and I think, you know, that set the stage for the whole trial. Let's let's look at it. So I want to ask first, how do you prepare for an opening? I know you spent days and hours and, you know, you had a slideshow and we went through the slides and you practiced it a bunch of times. So how do you how do you prepare for it? Well, first of all, David, that's very kind of you to say. I don't know that I I won this case in opening um, because I believe I, I do believe that defense attorneys and and defendants, of course, they always start out behind just by virtue of the fact that there's a an indictment, a charge, um, and so hopefully this just kind of leveled the playing field for us. Um, but you know, you say I spent you know, hours and, and days on this. I spent weeks working on this, um, you know, and and probably rewrote it, um, no lie, you know, at least a hundred times. And, and part of that is just because I really cared for this client and really wanted to uh, win this case for him and, and get it across to the jury early on that we believed not only that he was not guilty and that the government couldn't prove the case, but that he was an innocent person who was being targeted here. Um, so that was really important to me. And, and then secondly, you know, it became very clear that all of this irrelevant crap was going to come in for this false statement count. And we had to figure out how to deal with that. So it was tricky, you know, figuring out how to deal with all this extraneous stuff in the opening. And so, you know, that's part of why I, I spent so much time on it. So you write out every word of your opening, I know, but then you you memorize it. I mean, you go up there and perform the opening. You don't read it, which, I mean, I, I can't memorize things. Um, so I don't, you know, I can't do that. But you were able to, you're able to perform the opening. Well, the reason I do that is because I don't have your abilities, David. So I don't Please. have the confidence to go up there and just speak and and have a, a general outline. And, you know, 
what I do is, I mean, sometimes I do write out word for word, but when I go up there, I just have a very, very basic outline. And, and I have memorized a lot of that and practiced a lot of that. But, but that is just so that when I'm up there, you know, I, I can just deliver a story and, and it's, you know, and, and just present, um, an emotion for the client. And I remember for this particular opening, pretty early on in the opening that I started to break down and I was like, oh shit. Um, you know, and when I say break down, I, I, my voice started to crack and I was getting emotional and I was like, gosh, I can't, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And luckily I was able to get past that because I had another 30 minutes to go after that. But, um, I mean, that was just how much this meant to all of us and, um, how important I thought the opening was. But that's why, I think you're so persuasive and successful is because the jury sees that and sees how much it mattered to you. Um, you know, you, you use the slideshow or PowerPoint in your opening, you know, that's something we're, we're doing a lot more of. Um, and I, and I love the, you know, that we use the picture of Andrew and his family to start out. Um, some people don't like that we do that. Uh, and, and, uh, but we always do. Yeah, I mean, it, again, this is our way of humanizing our client. And we had such a wonderful person to represent in this case. And we wanted to convey that to the jury, what a wonderful human being he was. And, and so this is our way of doing. And, you know, of course, judges don't like that. Of course, the government doesn't like that because they they don't want them to see a human being. But I mean, that that's our job. That's what we need to do. And your your theme, you started out, this is what happens when you place a target on somebody's back. I love that theme. The judge, uh, not so much. He, he, there was no objection to it. Uh, and and you, you said it, there was no objection. But then after the opening, the judge made comments about how he's not going to let us uh, do that the rest of the trial. And we couldn't even use the word target the rest of the trial. Yeah, that's true. But um you know, and we had filed, we haven't talked about this, but we filed pretrial motions and we filed, you know, pretrial motions um, to dismiss based on selective prosecution. We haven't talked about that, but, you know, we, we believed that this was the government going after a black politician um, who was innocent. Um, and we knew we couldn't say that in the opening that, that the judge would jump up and down about that. But, um, we wanted a way to convey that thought. And so we used the word target. I thought that was a way of getting it into the jury's mind that they're just targeting a black man here. Um, they're just going after another black man and they're going to go after him at all costs, which they did in this case. Um, and they should not put up with it. Another thing, another thing you said in opening was Andrew Gillum's innocent. You didn't say he's not guilty. You didn't say they can't prove their case or keep an open mind, you know, some of the things that we always hear defense lawyers do in their opening, how important is it to come out and say he's innocent? And do you do that in every case or just cases like this? I think we do it in every case, David. We do, right? yeah. Because I, I, and I think that's crucial, you know, because I, I, I just don't think it's enough to say your client is, is not guilty or I, I think that's weak. 
yeah. to say, you know, the government can't prove it. I think you have to be strong. You have to be very bold and and opening and you have to say your client is innocent. And, you know, I said earlier that I think we always start out behind um, as criminal defense lawyers with our clients and we need to be strong um, in our opening. So, I mean, this is something I learned from you. So, I mean, so what is your thoughts about saying a client is innocent and opening? I think you have to do it. I, I We've gotten a lot of criticism from other defense lawyers from, from sort of moving away from, uh, you know, reasonable doubt and things like this. And by the way, I think, you know, harping on reasonable doubt in closing is, is critical and explaining that standard. But at the end of the day, the jury wants to know, I think that you believe your client is innocent. And right. and so if if they don't believe that, then it doesn't matter what the standard is. They're gonna they're gonna convict. Um, in in my opinion, the the other right. part of your, I mean, we I could spend the whole hour on your opening, but I I loved how you sort of described Andrew as a nerdy little kid watching Maxine Waters on C-SPAN, right? And and again, you know, just telling a beautiful story about who Andrew Gillum was and is. No objection. Um, got through it, but then the judge afterwards, who who just I guess did not like us and what we were doing, just said there's going to be no more of that. You're not going to talk about Maxine Waters and poor little right. black kid, and just just was on us uh, the whole case. Yeah, I think the judge absolutely hated um, all of that stuff about Andrew and and hated my whole opening and and hated me. Um, but you know, again, I think it was crucial to to convey who Andrew is, and and that I think that was such a beautiful picture because that who that is who Andrew was, right? Andrew was a nerdy little kid who would you know watch C-SPAN and watch you know Maxine Waters, his hero, and then he grows up to be you know somebody who's trying to emulate her and be this good politician and and be this public servant. You know, in a lot of ways, this case makes me so angry because had they not put a target on his back, he would have been the governor of Florida and our country might be in a different place. I mean, it just it's still thinking about it makes my blood boil. It's um, so outrageous and disappointing. And we would definitely be in a much better place if Andrew had become governor. You know, there are cases where we have unlimited funds, Margo, where we can hire graphic designers and jury consultants and hot seat operators. And um, <laughs> I, I never knew that term until we had enough funds, but somebody to, you know, run the, run the uh, evidence from, from the table. We didn't have that in this case. We had very, very tight budget and limited funds. So we made all the PowerPoints. We um, uh, did uh, uh, the jury consulting on our own. Um, we did focus groups in our office with the secretaries um, and and uh, I was the one putting the evidence up on the screen and running your PowerPoint during. You were our hot seat operator. <laughs> I was the hot seat operator in the case. It re it reminded me a little of our of our public defender days, which you know you got to do everything on your own. Yeah, yeah, but this this was a great lesson for us, I think, to learn that you could do a lengthy, complicated trial um, on a shoestring budget, you know, and I. I think it almost ended up being better that way, um, you know, and and I love jury consultants. I, I, I love being, you know, able to have those focus groups. I love being able to have the person, the technician to put up all the evidence. But 
I, I thought it was so much more intimate that it was just the three of us. It was, you know, you, me and, and Katie that was there. I just, um, I, I thought it worked better. Um, I thought it was a better visual for the jury to not see that there was an army of lawyers trying the case and all these paralegals and associates sitting in the, uh, in the audience. I, I just thought, um, it worked for us here and, and I, I ended up liking it more. Yeah, and I, I also thought the visual of four white men at the government's table and then our table and the rest of the courtroom, to me, that was also a very striking visual. Nothing was ever said about it, of course, but the four old white guys at their table and then you know, our table and the rest of the courtroom, I thought was pretty striking. Right. And so I think what you're referring to is, is we had women on our side and we had an African-American on our side. And so it wasn't just all. Um, and of course, we had two African-American clients on our side. So it wasn't just all um, of the um, good old boys. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the the crosses um, in the trial. And so, you know, it was Again, the judge precluded us from bringing out tons of stuff um, uh, that we wanted to bring out. The first thing, you know, there was an undercover investigation in this case for two years into Tallahassee politics, which is wild to me. They sent in two trained FBI operatives to go undercover and try to ensnare politicians, and they got a lot of them. Um, one of the politicians they got, they brought to Vegas and and basically bought him a prostitute. Um, and we wanted to bring that out, you know, that the lengths to which these undercover agents would go to and the judge wouldn't let us. I know it's crazy. Um, and, and this was more of, you know, our, our part of our theme of how they just when they set a target on somebody's back, they would go to every length to try and get that person. That was one example. And so that was important that that should come in. Of course, the judge didn't let it in. Um, but, but let me ask you, David, now, you know, because you did a lot of the crosses. I think you did all the crosses on this particular part of the trial. And and so this is the, you know, this, the bribery, um, so-called bribery investigation that took place. And there are these two undercover agents, three undercover agents that go in and for almost two years are befriending Andrew and doing things with Andrew and, you know, trying to gain his trust so that two years later they can try and bribe him. So how did you go about approaching those crosses with the undercover? Well, it's it's really interesting, right? <clears throat> because he's never, excuse me, never charged. Excuse me one sec. <clears throat> he's never charged with bribery. So it's it's really weird that the the government spends the first couple days of the trial with these undercover agents, you know, who were trying to bribe and see if Andrew would accept the bribe, which he never does, and the lengths to which they will go. So so, you know, I didn't know how it would play out, whether they were going to be really antagonistic to us and fighting or whether they were going to agree that there were no bribes in the case. Um, but it became pretty clear early on that the agents, these undercover agents had no axe to grind against Andrew and were pretty honest, um, surprisingly. So 
when it when when we were able to figure out early on in the cross that like look they're not here to hurt andrew and they were going to give us what we wanted i was able to ask you know questions like that's how we want politicians to act and they gave it to us and so we kept you know the cross i think really shifted from this is going to be a big fight for for you know half a day to hey let's this is kumbaya andrew did what he was supposed to do Absolutely. And and so this ends up being becoming like this secondary theme for us. Right. And we get it from the mouths of the government witnesses, from the government FBI agencies, undercover agents. And I thought this was just pure beauty on your part that you were able to bring out the secondary theme. And and I, I would like for you to talk about this, because once you get this nugget of gold where an undercover agent says to you, that's how we want our politicians to act. You use it and get them to say it, you know, over and over and over again. So can you talk about that? Well, I I will say that at the beginning of the crosses, you know, I, I did not think it would go like this. So I had a whole different cross prepared with where it was going to be a fight where I was going to have to, um, you know, try to impeach them with the transcripts and and so on, it turned into a different kind of cross where we were agreeing um, on how Andrew was and using the transcript as, so here's another example of how politicians should act. And here's another example of why you had to shut down the bribery uh, um, investigation. And so, you know, the government then said, well, I don't understand why they're doing this. He's not charged with bribery. Why are they bringing out over and over again that he didn't do bribery? Well, they called these witnesses. And so, you know, we embraced it. And, and this is something you and I talk about all the time, which is to, em- this was embracing, you know, good facts, obviously, but embracing the bad facts. Right. Um, the bad facts in this case were you know, Marcus Gillum, Andrew's brother, said bad things on tape. Other people said bad things on tape. And so we just embraced it. Those people were not telling the truth. Who do you want to, who was telling the truth? Andrew Gillum, that's who they went to. And so, you know, you embrace sort of the bad facts um, by showing that Andrew didn't do it. And and it just turned into, uh, you know, I thought, like you say, our, our secondary theme in the case, and it turned into, um, uh, I think part of why we won that false statement count. And it ended up being s- such a huge contrast to the lead FBI agent who ended up being the lead FBI agent. Um, you know, you have these undercovers who, when they testified, they clearly had no ax to grind. As you said, they came across very honestly. And, you know, they they told you this is how we want our politicians to act. And then contract contrast that with the lead agent. Tell us about the the lead agent and and your approach to him and how he testified. So this guy Winderspawner or whatever his name is. Spawn. What's that? Weederspawn. Weederspawner. Um he he it, to me in in a lot of ways won us count one. He here's a guy who, you know, spent 30 years as an FBI agent. And unlike the undercover agents, had an axe to grind and and showed um, what a target on somebody's back looked like. Even though the first two witnesses, the undercover agents said, this is how we want politicians to act. Andrew did not take a bribe. That's why we didn't charge him. That's why we shut down the bribery investigation. 
This guy got on the stand and said, I still believe that Andrew took a bribe. And so at that point, he and I were just battling it out. And again, I wasn't really expecting him to say that after the first two witnesses, but he and I went at it. And I remember at the break, I go back to, to Andrew and you and you know, I my, I was I was upset. My my face was red. I, we were I was fighting with this FBI agent. If you just read the transcript, it doesn't look like I'm scoring any points. It looks like we're just fighting. But Andrew said something very I thought intuitive, which was keep doing what you're doing. He's showing who he is, and the jury sees it. Right. Um. And so. And in fact, I think the judge realized it too, because then the judge told the prosecutor, like, what are you doing? Instructed the agent to stop saying that he believed that Andrew was taking a bribe. You know, this is, I think, the only case, the only trial that I've had where they call that agent at the beginning of the trial, and then they call him at the end of the trial. So they call him again, um, and, and he's kind of a different witness at the end of the trial. I think they realized that that was a mistake. How he behaved was a mistake. Um, and and if you remember, you know, and, and this is a lesson learned on my part, because I was, I was nervous about you going after him the way you did. Like you guys are sparring, you were raising your voice, he was raising his voice, and I was afraid how the jury was going to react, um, that they wouldn't like that. But in the end, of course, I was wrong about that. You know, you you really did succeed in showing his true colors and showing that, you know, he was the one responsible for the target. We we went at it. And I mean, it, it was a wild cross. I remember also, you know, he, he indirect said Andrew had a motive to a financial motive to do this crime because he was spending more money than he brought in. And he put up which by the way was untrue, but he put up a chart where the chart detailed things like church, childcare, um, you know, and and I remember Andrew's wife, RJ, saying to us at the break, like, that is so offensive that he's putting up our our, you know, day-to-day living expenses. How dare he? And, you know, sometimes we forget as lawyers, because we see it so often, how how intrusive, how awful the government can be. And again, so so you know, we started crossing on those points. And I think that hit home with the jury as well. Like, you know, yeah, so what that he has a church membership? You're saying he's committing a crime for a church membership or to or to have his kids do extracurricular activities. It's just absurd. It's so true. And I, I remember um I think that was the only time RJ had to leave the courtroom because she was so horrified and, and humiliated that her whole life was up on the screen for for the jury to see and and to see how they you know were so invasive. Um, so yeah, I I, I think it, it it again went to show the lengths that they would go to. But but you know, going back to embracing the bad facts, and again, you know, I've been your Padawan for a long time, David. So this is something that I I learned from you that you have to embrace the bad facts. Um, and and there wasn't necessarily anything bad about these financial records, but it was just a way of of you know showing that the government looked at everything. 
that had um, to do with Andrew Gillum. They looked at every bank statement. They looked at every email, every phone record. They looked at his retirement accounts. They looked at his travel records. When he went to Disney, took his children to Disney, they looked to see who paid for it. And they found nothing. They found absolutely nothing. So, you know, they would not stop. You know, after looking at all this, they just kept going. That's when they did the bribery investigation. That's when they did the surprise interview, when the supposed false statement happened. That's, you know, this was just more and more of the government targeting and going at him at all costs. Well, well, everything, you know, that we do, we steal from other people. So embracing the bad facts. um, I learned that from David Gerger in a trial that I did with him, where there was a video of our client um, and, and David said, you know, thank goodness there's that video uh, (laughs) because imagine what the government would say if there wasn't. And so, you know, I I always think, you know, whatever documents, whatever the government's harping on, you have to, you have to embrace, you have to put back on the screen and talk about it. And so we did that in this case, we put the charts back on when, when the FBI agent who is so proud of, you know, tape recording Andrew's statement at the park, we, we went line by line through that statement with the FBI agent when he got back on the stand and, and showed that, that right. Andrew was telling the truth. So, so I think you have to embrace what the government thinks are bad facts and, and flip them into good facts. Um, we, we, we had, you know, in your part of the case, um, with, with all of these, um, foundations and charitable, um, organizations, witnesses who got up and, they liked Andrew. Um, and so your crosses of them, I thought were really good. And and one thing I want to raise is that, you know, the defense lawyers for some of these witnesses were very helpful to us. They acted actually like real defense lawyers and told us, hey, here's what our client is going to stay on the stand. Here's things you can ask to get out some good facts for you. I, I always wonder why these some of these lawyers won't speak to us, um, which make, drives me bananas. Yeah. And we talk about this a lot. Um, it, it drives us both crazy that you're a, a defense lawyer and yet you become this like government agent and you refuse to let other defense lawyers um, speak to your client or speak to to you even about what your client's going to talk about. And if we're there just to find out what the truth is, you know, what are you so afraid of? Um, but you know, it, it did turn out in this case that some defense lawyers let us speak to their clients, although I'll say that um, that happened mainly after um, the openings. And and I think they saw our opening and saw um, where we were going and saw that the case was bullshit. Um, and so then they did let us speak to their clients. And, and it makes a, a difference to know, you know, this is you know, what your what the client can say. Um, and this is what you can cross on. Um, you know, and, and I don't understand why more more uh, lawyers don't let that happen. You know, one of the things that we like to do, and we did it, I thought, really well in this case was try to bring out character evidence or good facts about our client through the government witnesses. And one of the government witnesses who was called, I think, on cross said he would trust Andrew with his kid. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Well, so this was, you know, another um, incredible thing that, that came from, from your head, Um, you know, and, and totally unplanned before trial, right? Because before trial, we get these 302s 
where the government interviews all of these witnesses and they it's so clear they're trying to taint them. They're trying to bias them. They're trying to turn them against Andrew by saying, and look how Andrew did this. And don't you agree that this is fraud? And don't you agree that, you know, he was trying to steal from you? And they try to turn these witnesses. So, you know, we were nervous that these people who had been friends of Andrew would now be against Andrew. Um, but we could kind of see the way they ended up testifying that they hadn't been turned completely. And so I think the first time this happens um, was during one of my witnesses and on direct um, as the government's going through their direct with them, I think you pass me a note and you say, Hey, ask him this. And so I do end up asking him about, you know, don't you believe that Andrew is an honest person and that he has a reputation for honesty and he has a reputation for being a law abiding individual. And he ended up, the witness ended up saying yes to those things. And I think after we were successful with that witness, we ended up asking five other witnesses. And here, I think the jury hears government witnesses saying that Andrew's a good guy, honest guy, law-abiding guy, I think had a, a big impact in this case. Um, so I think that went well. You know, we violated one of Irving Younger's old rules, which is never ask a witness a question you don't know the answer to. But I think you have to, right? Otherwise, you know, you're gonna, you're never gonna be able to win these criminal cases if if you don't take some risks and are willing to. They have to be calculated risks. I mean, right. we we believed that the witness would give us what we wanted, um, but we didn't know. Well, I mean, they and they were huge risk. I mean, imagine if it said, no, I think he's a criminal or no, he's not an honest guy. And we didn't ask every witness that. Right. We 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 took that. We did those calculations in our head. Um, but we we got enough of the government witnesses to say that, yes, he is an honest law abiding individual. Um, so the risk played out here. If if they had given bad answers, I would have said it was all your idea and I would have I would have blamed you. Um, so. You know, a couple other uh, interesting things before we get to the jury going out. Um, the judge really cut us off on lots of things that I thought were were important. We talked about the prostitution that the agents paid for for one of the other politicians. I mean, in this case, the judge let in a complete ethics investigation into Andrew Gillum. T totally irrelevant. So unduly prejudicial hearsay. There's so many reasons to keep it out. The judge lets this report in. And then we find out that the person who authored the report tweeted crazy racist tweets after he issues the report and Andrew settles the ethics case. A picture of a monkey where he says another Democrat uh, had to resign or something like this. And we wanted to we said to the judge, if you're going to let in the ethics report, we should get to impeach the author through these tweets. And the judge wouldn't let us. It, it, it still, you can tell, makes me upset. You almost had to bail me out a couple of times with, with this uh, particular judge because he he did get upset. Um, he even got upset with you, which I've never seen before. Yeah. No, no, that happens quite often. Um, but yeah, he got upset with with all of us. Um, and And David, I'd like you to talk about, you know, one of the things is he would anticipate what we were doing, right? And so before closing, he shuts you down on a lot of things. Like he tells you, 
you can't argue this, you can't argue this, you can't, you know, you can't say this. And and so can you talk about, you know, talk about that and how you approach the closing, knowing that you were going to be limited by the judge, that you would get screened at if you said certain things? Yeah, I had never really had this before where a judge like gave me rules about what I was allowed to say and not say before closing. You know, one of the things he really harped on is that we couldn't use the word target anymore after your opening. We couldn't um, even suggest there was race involved. I I thought we had a clever way around that during crosses of the age. And some of them we'd say, so so you would agree that it would be wrong to use race to go after a politician. And the agents, of course, would say yes. And the judge, you know, blew his top on that, um, saying that we were by asking it in the negative, suggesting it. So you know, I think you have to be clever with, with you have to abide by the judge's rulings, of course, but you have to also defend your client. And so, you know, you ha- it's a very tight rope to walk. And, and I think we walked it here. The government did not object during the closing. Um, they didn't think we were stepping over it. The judge certainly did a number of times. I could see his smoke coming out of his ears. Um but but you you know of course you have to you have to abide by the judge's rulings you can't you can't violate them but you all you have to argue it in a way that um you're doing your client a a service and and also not crossing the line yeah and i have to say david i mean you gave this amazing amazing closing and um you know you you talk about how the judge did not like us, you know, talking about race, but you told this and in using the word target, but you told this beautiful, beautiful story in closing. And, um, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I, I think it's so important in closing to tell these stories, these analogies and, and, you know, you, you use these great pictures to demonstrate what reasonable doubt is, and you use these vi- visuals. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about, you know, the importance of that for your closings, because you do it so well. Well, thanks. I, I, I stole all that stuff too, um, either from <laughs> Milton Hirsch, who's the best storyteller I know, my former partner, now a judge. He is an incredible storyteller, and, and I stole a bunch of stories from him. Um, you know, just learning from uh, Robert Hirshhorn with with how to explain reasonable doubt, Josh Dubin with how to, you know, get out some of these points. A lot of these guys um, who who are some of the masters, you can just steal and, and then you have to make your own. So I like telling stories in closing. I think it's a good way to break up a long closing and get the jury um, on your side. But, you know, I will say, I, I remember a case not too long ago where we were telling the stories in the jury uh, was not reacting. Uh, you know you're in trouble when that happens. But in this case, they they seemed to like us, and we knew we had a shot um, in the closing when when you know we could tell some of the jurors were with us. But then the jury goes out for five days. It's the worst oh. part. It was terrible. Torture, torture. torture. <laughs> and they send us they send us this note where we thought the jury had convicted on count one, the false statement count, because they said, can we? convict if we only find one of the statements false. And we were so heartbroken. Um, but it turns out that that was one of the crazy jurors who sent that note. Yeah. And and that was one of the crazy things about the whole deliberations is we kept getting, we got a lot of notes during deliberations. And um, 
different jurors would write the notes. So we never knew really who was the um, the fourth person. And we we would get notes that would talk about materiality for false this false statement count. So we thought, okay, this is a good thing. They're talking about materiality. Then we got that horrible note. And and so it would just kind of we were just going up and down. And it was uh it it was just it was a terrible experience. And um it, it was just bizarre all the different notes that we were getting. Well, I will say it, it is it is a valuable lesson because we all think we can tell what the notes mean. And I always immediately say what the notes mean. You always get mad at me and tell me to stop. Um and and because I'm always such a pessimist and you get on me. And in this case, I was not 99% sure, but from the notes, a hundred percent sure that the jury was convicting on count one based on the notes we had gotten. And I thought a hundred percent sure that they were convicting Sharon of the wire fraud counts. I based on the notes they were sending. I thought the only shot we had was a hung jury on the wire fraud and then a great appeal on the false statement counts. I thought for sure, I, I told everybody, and I believe this, that if he was convicted of the false statement, we would win on appeal um, because I, I just thought there was nothing there and the judge's rulings would 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 come back to haunt him. But I was completely wrong. Completely wrong. So so what was that moment like when the jury comes out and, and the verdict is read on that false statement count? Well, just to set the stage, it was five days after closing and a long weekend. Um, so we were dying. Um, I had, we were in the little room, uh, attorney room when we got noticed that there was a verdict. I told RJ and Andrew to prepare for guilty verdicts. I even said, you know, I think the judge may take you in because of how he was, um, even though the prosecutors, I don't think were, would ask for it. And and I I was really down. And I remember RJ saying, you know, it's my birthday today. This jury is not going to convict me on my birthday. I have faith in this jury. Right. And I sort of like patted her on the back, like that's so nice and sweet. And we walked into that courtroom and they acquitted. And I mean, there's no, there's no feeling like it. I mean, especially in this case where we believed our client was innocent and we believed in in Andrew and the whole family. I, I can't describe the feeling because I, you know, if you haven't experienced it, you just don't know what it's like. It's, it's honestly the greatest and most rewarding feeling and the reason we do it. And, and you had been so sure that it was not going to be a not guilty. So um, it must've been such a shock. I, I still held out a little bit of hope, um, but I just remember that sense of relief um, and Andrew just tears started pouring out of his eyes, which of course makes me start to cry. And, and, and Katie is crying and I know RJ is crying and just this incredible sense of, you know, thank goodness and, and relief and, you know, the right thing happened. So, um, you know, during, during the deliberations, there were crazy notes as well. We found out one of the jurors was posting selfies on LinkedIn and asking God to give her strength to come to a verdict. And so the judge questioned all of the jurors. Um, it turned out that that juror that we were talking about at the beginning, the one who said Trump is still my president, said from day one, she would not deliberate uh, unless everybody said he was guilty. 
And for five days, the jurors tried to convince her to switch. And then the juror who was on LinkedIn posting um, ended up switching her vote from not guilty to guilty to support this juror because the other jurors weren't listening to some of her personal stories. So 10 jurors were pushing for five days to, to find Andrew not guilty. The first vote was 11 to one, not guilty for Andrew. Right. And then, and then the the prosecutors, without knowing anything, tell uh, the judge that they're going to retry him after the hung verdicts on the fraud counts. And we speak to the jurors afterwards, and they tell us there's no way he should be retried. He was innocent. They were upset. The that ten jurors, ten jurors were were upset <laughs> that yeah. that he was. I'm going to have to face this again. They they had no idea. And so they end up writing a letter to the judge and to the prosecutors urging them to drop it. And I have to say, you know, the prosecutors did the right thing and dropped it, which after they said they were going to retry him, I was a little surprised about. I was surprised, but but I've never seen this before. I don't know if you have, David, where, you know, the majority, not just the majority, 10 of the jurors you know, reached out to them and was telling them, you know, we had two rogue jurors who refused to deliberate, but you've got 10 diverse jurors of different backgrounds, different political affiliations. And, you know, you didn't have a case here. You know, we, we wanted to root for the government, but, but there was nothing there. There was no evidence. And so, you know, it re- it was really because of them that they convinced the government not to, to not to try him again. It's unbelievable. I've never had such an amazing jury who they came together. They wrote this beautiful letter. They sent it to the press. They sent it to us. They sent it to the prosecutors and and the prosecutors um, really did the right thing to their credit and and dropped it. I guess they couldn't really try it again after hearing all that. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I, and I do want to make the point here, and this is, you know, this is for Andrew, that um, this was not a case where the government didn't meet their burden or the government just didn't try a good case. This is a case where Andrew was innocent and there was no evidence that was ever going to prove his guilt. And so this was not Andrew beating the system. This is the jury, you know, or tenure is getting it right um, and finding that Andrew was an innocent person and that he had been wrongly charged and he, and he had been targeted. And so this was not a technicality. This was an innocent person. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think it still bothers Andrew rightfully. So when people say, you know, so glad you beat it or, you know, things like this, where, you know, even just people don't realize getting charged just getting charged um, stigmatizes you for the rest of your life. Right. Um, you know, even if you're innocent, and and we know the government charges innocent people. We know innocent people plead guilty. We know innocent people are convicted at trial. And so, even though Andrew was innocent, um, he has this stigma uh, that he shouldn't have. And the government never never considers that, right? They're they're like, you know. Either we're always right or, you know, we'll we'll let the jury figure it out. You know, they don't understand the stigma. They don't understand how devastating that is to a person to indict them, devastating, you know, mentally, financially, you know, um, 
you know, to their job, to their family. Um, they just, they never take those things into consideration. So I, I'm, I'm so glad the jury got it right and found that Andrew um, was an innocent person. Amen. And I think Andrew has a really bright future ahead of him. He He's one of the most gifted politicians um, and and people that we've come in contact with. So I'm 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 looking forward to seeing what he does next, and I'm glad you won that case in opening. <laughs> and and I'm glad that I've had a, a master Jedi to teach me all these years. So thank you, David. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Margot and I, it was such an honor to represent Andrew Gillum, an innocent man. And I hope this case restarts his political career. We need him in politics. I also want to thank you all for listening this season, season number five. We had nine great episodes. I want to thank Milton Hirsch, Todd Blanche, Jerry Lefcourt, Lisa Wayne, Matt Menchel, John Loro, Barry Sheck, Craig Albee, and Margot Moss for being my guests. I also want to thank Alfred Spellman from Raconteur for producing the show and Cliff Bumgardner for recording it and doing all the sound. Really appreciate the two of them. Um, and of course, the CLE code for this season is 230714. And again, it's 230-7145N. You get 9.5 credits for general, 2.5 ethics credits, and one tech credit. Finally, I want to thank all of you for listening. I do this because I love it. I don't get a penny from it. I spend a ton of time on it, but I love, love doing it. All that I really ask of you all is to spread the word. I need a for you all to leave reviews, to like it and subscribe. That's the only way the algorithms pick it up. And I wanna spread the good word about criminal defense lawyering, trials and so on. It's my passion and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So all that I ask is that you spread the word and, and do all those things to help the algorithms and leave a review. So I have a bunch of bonus episodes already lined up. Uh, also preparing for season six. I am uh, getting ready for it. So For the Defense is going to keep going. This was season five. Thank you guys so much for listening.